Overlooking Phoenix from high above in the Star Worldwide Network Studios. Badge Boys. Stories, insight, guests, and true blue humor with retired police sergeant Darren Birch and retired police officer Jason Schechterly. Brought to you by OfficerPrivacy.com, the company's officers trust with their online privacy. And now, here they are, the Badge Boys. Welcome back to another edition of the Badge Boys, the show where two retired cops talk to the community. I'm retired Crime Stoppers Sergeant Darren Birch, and unfortunately not in studio with us is retired police officer Jason Schechterly, but he will be back next week. But we have a very special Badge Boys Veterans Day episode that you won't want to miss. We have a true war hero in the in the truest sense a retired major frank moreno he was oh my gosh he was a not just a war hero but he saved so many lives uh during one of the first battles of vietnam where he flew a helicopter saving countless lives and then he himself had to be saved by another helicopter pilot i mean this isn't going to be an incredible Incredible show. Uh, I was with 101st Airborne, so uh, I'm a little bit uh, <laughs> in awe and in honor to be in presence because he is in studio with us today. Then in Comp Talk, we're going to talk to retired police officer Jim Calms, who was on the show previously talking about the very first Michael Jackson victim of the uh, that sexual predator. Uh, he has now written a book, and we'll be talking to him. And then in the last segment, we're going to have heroic headlines, we're going to have loony laws, and we're going to have an inspirational message. So stay tuned, stay informed, and most of all, you can be entertained after this message from our sponsor, Officer Privacy. More stories, inside guests, and true blue humor coming up on Batch Boys. We'll be back right after this. OfficerPrivacy.com is offering a special deal for listeners of this podcast. This is a great deal. Go to officerprivacy.com forward slash BB. Their team of current and retired law enforcement officers will remove your information from the top three sites that are showing your home address, phone number, and more. Sign up at officerprivacy.com forward slash BB. You can also follow the link on our show notes. Well, my, my, my. We happen to know that guy. Criminals think they are so smart. The problem for them is the police are smarter. Detectives resolve things. They don't give up. I'm not the only one who answered the call. I am retired Sergeant Darren Bruce. Detective Chris McMullen. Detective Frank Dillard. Robert Cushing. Vermont State Police. Now, where did he come from? Every detective has that one case. This is that one case for me. He thinks he can outsmart these detectives. Well, he has another thing coming. You're not going to be able to run from it. You want to find that smoking gun. He does what he was made to do. Find the bad guy. That is, as they say in tennis, game, set, and match. American Detective. You're listening to Batch Boys with retired police sergeant Darren Birch and retired police officer Jason Schechterly. Now, back to the Batch Boys. Daddy 
Yeah, I love that song, and that is in honor of our guest, uh, Major retired Major Frank Moreno, who is uh, was in the Battle of I.A. Drang, which was one of the first battles of the Vietnam War for the Americans, and it was, uh, well, we were outnumbered, quite frankly, and he was there in the, in the mix. He was saving lives, and then he himself had to be saved. So we're going to be talking to him about that battle, about his career, uh, and about all things uh, Army, quite frankly, because we don't have Jason Sheckley in the studio. He was the Air Force brat in the studio. So am I. Uh, and well, you were your family, so you're okay. Mm-hmm. You're yep. okay. You, yep. you can stay. Uh, <laughs> Gee, thanks. You're welcome. You want to come run the show? <laughs> <laughs> See, I'm not stupid. <laughs> That's why you can stay. Um, but before we get into this, I do want to do a shout out for our sponsor. We um, uh, last couple um, shows we've had Jason talk about the importance of officer privacy. Uh, Robin talked a little bit about pete james commitment and dedication to officer privacy and keeping officers safe uh over the weekend i went to of all places believe it or not starbucks i had to go there Uh, my daughter and uh, her husband wanted some coffee and i wanted to give them a break so i took the kids i went to starbucks got them some coffee just kind of had time with the grandkids and I noticed that the coffee was like $10 a piece. I couldn't believe how expensive what? it was. And it dawned on me when I was buying these, these coffees, these silly you know, foo-foo drinks. Uh, n- no offense if you like your foo-foo drinks. Uh, <laughs> but as I'm buying this, I couldn't help but think for the cost of that, an officer, uh, anyone out there can keep their privacy through officer privacy. Uh, the... The, the cost, the two programs that Officer Privacy has is the for about $30 less than, you can have them do all the monitoring for your safety. They will go into all the major search engines, remove your data, remove your private information, remove your phone numbers, remove your addresses. They will keep you safe from prying eyes on the internet. They also have a program where you can pay less than $10, less than the amount of a coffee, and you yourself will be given the links to all those top 30 sites that love to give out the information for a cost, quite frankly. Uh, that's how they make money. And you can yourself purge your system. Now, it's, it takes time because they don't want you to opt out. And in order to do it, you have to go through a, a series of, of steps and Officer Privacy, Pete James, and his dedicated crew of law enforcement officers and retirees will do that for you, but you can do it yourself, and they will give you the steps to do it. So both programs are there for you. You just have to go to officerprivacy.com forward slash BB or Badge Boys. You get a free month, so you can test it out for free. You also get a gift, but also you get that sense of security. And this is for everyone. As Robin always talks about, this mm-hmm. is for your mothers, these, your sisters, your brothers, your everybody. If you're worried about your daughters, you know. If you're you, single and dating, that's kind of something you might want to protect yourself with. Oh, because they're out there. Yeah. If LeBron James can do it to an officer and out him and put his face out there, put his name out there and put the hourglass out there and say, you're next and threaten him, then anyone can do it because he is... I would say he's as dumb as a rock, but that'd be insulting rock, so I won't do it. I won't go there. <laughs> um, so now I want to uh, transition to, uh, again, our in-studio guest, uh, Major Frank Moreno, uh, won the Silver Star, uh, won the Medal of Honor, the Flying Cross, and this is because of his stellar 
career uh, and I'll let him talk about where he went and how he got there, uh, the story behind it. But before we do, I want to play a little clip from um, We Were Soldiers. This is a Mel Gibson film, which was based on the battle that he bravely saved so many lives. At ease, gentlemen. Welcome to the new cavalry. We will ride into battle. And this will be our horse. Oh, that's kind of freaky. I feel that. You feel it? Yeah, I, I feel, I, I feel like, emotional because I've been in yeah. helicopters, you know, when I was with the 101st, and I was in peacetime. I can't even imagine being in, I'll just say it, the shit, the, the, the hell that uh, this guest of ours has been in so without further ado i want to introduce to you uh silver star winner um medal of honor winner uh, just an incredible incredible hero in ia drang and by the way he, he he won't take these he immediately told me no it wasn't the medal of honor i already screwed up on that <laughs> so silver star the flying cross uh this is a true hero a patriot and sir thank you for your service thank you appreciate it um I don't know if you saw the film, We Were Soldiers. I saw it. It was a very emotional, really great film in terms of showing how difficult that battle was. One of the first battles of Vietnam, and it could have really turned the tide in a lot of ways because we could have very well lost that completely if it were not for the bravery. Am I overstating that? No, we, uh, unfortunately, we had the firepower that really brought us through, and we had the ability to reinforce and that we just wore out the enemy. That's all. Gotcha. But you were outnumbered, what, 2,000 to 400 or something like that? 7,000, estimated 7,000 to we had 400. That's insane. That that is absolutely, you're so over, uh, yeah, you're right, not overpowered. That's probably a bad way to say it, but overmanned uh, as far as personnel. Um, Before we get into that battle, I definitely want to go there, talk about what it was like flying missions, period, and then in that specific battle. Uh, how did you come to be a, a kid from a small town in southern Arizona to this um, a major uh, flying uh, helicopters? I'd, out of nowhere, of course, I joined the Army straight out of uh, high school. And um, I served for uh, several years as an enlisted man. And uh, I was in the 101st Airborne Division, as a matter of fact. That was my first tour, uh, my first uh Hitch was with 101st for three years. And after that, I left, uh, I, I re-enlisted, uh, went to Germany, and uh, about that time, the, Korea, the Vietnam War was breaking open, and uh, they put out the call for uh, people to go to helicopter school, and I put in my bid, and uh, I was selected for it, and I left Germany straight for flight school in 1963. Was that something you'd always wanted to do, fly? Is that was your goal when you joined the Army, mm-hmm. or was that just one of those fortuitous paths that the river sometimes takes you? No, this will date me, but when I was a young kid, I was a you know, barefooted little kid down in, uh, in Wilcox, Arizona, in that area. Dos Cabezas was the name of the town. And um, I remember even then uh, running around barefooted, and I watched the uh, bombers uh, Practicing from World War II, there's a bombing range outside of Wilcox. And the, these things, these bombers would drone over our, uh, our little village there. And uh, we would, of course, kids come running when you hear these things going overhead. And the next thing you know is the escort fighters would swoop down and, and they 
they'd uh, buzz our home, you know, and we'd see the pilots, we'd wave at them out, they'd wave out the cockpit, Aww. that sort of thing. So um, that stuck with me. I thought flying was the most wonderful thing in the world. And so uh, when the time came, I, I would have liked to join the Air Force, but I didn't have the education to go anywhere with it. So, me and you both, my friend. <laughs> so when the opportunity came up, uh, you know, I jumped at it, and that was, I was very, very lucky. Good for you. Uh, I can't imagine what it was like the transition from peacetime, uh, if it was peacetime prior to uh, doing your enlistment, uh, prior to the Vietnam outbreak, um, to going into battle. What was that experience, the very first experience you had when you came across the enemy, if you will? Well, I was, um, you know, we trans transition is, it's from cold to hot, yeah. no question about it. Yeah. The only thing that can relate, and I've often told people this, is that the first time I landed in, um, when we went, in, when the battle was really going on, uh, I had a North Vietnamese soldier uh, that stood up right next to my, my helicopter, and I'm looking at him out my windshield, and he stood up and he raised his rifle, and, and at that moment in time, uh, I could only think, um, this guy's trying to kill me, and I had process it through my mind this is the enemy i am the enemy to him and yeah he's going to try to kill me so to think something that uh you know nobody would ever think that why do you even question it you know he's going to kill you but at the time no you never I'd so never, alien and yeah i'd never approached anyone in a hostile environment like that you know and you you survived that encounter to find yourself in uh, one of the first major battles of the Vietnam campaign. Yeah, he, he shot out our windshield on, wow. the, on the helicopter, and we escaped that one, but uh, my gunner took him out. And so, uh, yeah, that followed uh, 14 other landings that we made in uh, into LZ X-ray, pulling uh, the casualties out and, and bringing in emergency ammunition. And tell me about what that was like. Literally try to paint a picture Put me there. Uh, I can picture the helicopter. I can picture your Huey. I can picture you behind the uh, the instrument panel. I can't even imagine what it was like in terms of seeing that many forces. Were they out in the open? Were they in the jungle? Can you kind of paint a picture for me? We, uh, you never saw. We saw our forces. We they were on the perimeter. We could and the tracers. Uh, there was tracers all over. It's a green tracer with the uh, North Vietnamese. Our, unlike ours, our orange tracer. Yeah. And so uh, they were crisscrossing uh, the landing zone, the uh, rocket propelled grenades. You could see them shooting across the, the landing zone. Artillery fire was going, blasting completely around the, um, the western perimeter. And the opposite perimeter, the, uh, the rest of the, uh, the um, uh, position, there was no perimeter at all. It was all facing where the... The, the North Vietnamese were coming off the mountain, and they were concentrated on that western perimeter, and they were determined to overrun that area. So we, the, what contact we had was with the infantry was infiltrators that came through, and uh, we were focused mostly on landing and dropping the ammunition and getting out of there. Sure. But after about the, um, the fourth um, uh, assault in there, the um, medevac would not come in because they were getting shot at, and they don't have gunners. They don't have guns on their ships, so they pulled off medevac, and they asked if we would start taking out the casualties. So we were remaining on the ground to take on the casualties, and that's where we, uh, that's where we took most of our hits. 
and talk about a huge target. I mean, you're completely surrounded, and I'm assuming that, so please correct me anytime I'm wrong, please. I'm assuming you're completely surrounded by these these outnumbered forces. Uh, you're seeing these tracer rounds, these green lightning strikes coming across your bow, for lack of a better phrase, and you're in this big target. You're the target, I would think, mm-hmm. at that time. Um, what was going through your mind when you when you had to take that extra responsibility of saving lives? Well, you know, uh, we never had any second thoughts. We uh, it was our first experience. We just accepted it that this is the way it is in combat, and if you get blown away, you get blown away. Um, we never questioned it uh, when it came. Uh, they asked for volunteers to go back, and I went back. I never thought more that something would happen to me although we we talked about it before we went in there and ed freeman uh, told me says frank you know this may be your last day here you know that if we go back in and i said i understand he says are you ready to go i said i'm ready and we went how and old were you at this time i was 27 years old 27 yeah and um not only did you go back repeatedly but then something happened to you and you were shot down is that right that was um, much later, another, okay. another time. Um, I was, um, there's two, two things that happened in between. And that was in, uh, the Iodrang took place in November uh, of 14th of 1965. In 1966, I was, um, uh, January 66, I was, again, Freeman and I were together. We got called into was supposedly a, a, a an LZ that was um, quiet. They had had people wounded, though, and they wanted us to pull the company commander out because he'd been shot through the stomach. And he needed help right away, so they said, can you help us? And we were flying um, what we called in ash and trash. We were resupplying troops and moving troops and, and equipment between the fire base and, and back home. And they asked us if we could uh, stop by, and, uh, and we said, yeah, we'll come in. And so we had uh, ourselves and a wingman and we came in, and as soon as we landed, I mean, we came under intense fire. And, and that's when I was wounded, and Freeman is sitting on the opposite side uh, within the cockpit, and he's looking at me. He sees that I've been blasted on the, right, the left-hand side and I'm bleeding. And um, my gunner, Kumba, was on the right-hand side, and we were taking the fire from the right rear. And so on the, you know, the seating for the gunner in the... Uh, it can be hidden in that little alcove uh, right where the fuel tank is. And so uh, the first burst that hit our aircraft knocked out Kumba's machine gun on that side, the M60 that's mounted on the, M- the uh, Huey. And that knocked that machine gun out. So Kumba picked up his M16 and he charged it. And when he charged it, the next, next burst knocked it out of his hands. Oh. But disabled that weapon. And by this time, Kumba is just uh, full of explicitives, you know, talking about the guy's birthrights and all that other business, <laughs> sure. you know. And so uh, I said, I said, Kumba, I says, knock it off. I says, um, get Ralph's gun. And so by that time, Ralph handed in the, the M16 and he charged it and, and he just pulled back into that little corner and sat there and he timed the, the, uh, 
gunner, the uh, enemy gunner, to be, because he was standing in elephant grass off to the side, and he'd stand up and shoot and then squat down. Gotcha. And so he timed it just right, wow. and when the guy stood up, he hit him with a blast in the, in the chest and killed him. That, Creatures of habit. That's, it, that stopped the threat right there. So yeah. we, But we didn't know how badly we were hit because the cockpit was just full of fire. I mean, we were getting uh, rounds all over the place. And so Freeman saw the blood on me. He says, you know, Frank, we got to get out of here. So the we had lost communications with our ship on the other side. They had their radio shot out. So uh, we signaled them that we were leaving, and uh, they pulled up alongside us. We took off. And when we landed, our aircraft was so disabled that we had to ground it right on the spot. We had the rotor controls had been shot out, you know, and they had bullet holes all through the control tubes and whatnot so we just left that there as far as my wound it was just a flesh wound the the spent bullet that ricocheted went in the meaty part of my thigh and the doctor just probed around pulled it out gave it to me for a souvenir and put a piece of band-aid tape on it and i was gone and you still have that flying today? the next day do you still have that? No, nope. that was that's a long, <laughs> long story. <laughs> long gone. Yeah, gotcha. Um, it's amazing the bravery. Uh, again, you know, Silver Star, Flying Cross, Purple Heart. Obviously, um, I, I just can't get over it. And yet, you talk a lot about the bravery of others in terms of um, people coming to, to get you and save you and so forth, and and others. Can you talk a little bit about that? That the feeling of that brotherhood, of being there for each other. Uh, indeed, yes. I, uh, I feel very strongly about that. And I, I look uh, today at our, uh, on this Veterans Day, I look at our warriors that have come back from uh, the other wars. We, we have a common bondage there because we had the same thing happen to us in Vietnam that happened to them in Afghanistan, and they pulled the rug out from under them. Yeah. So. Uh, I can understand their feelings and I appreciate their sacrifice, but uh, the bond is there. Uh, and I saw it firsthand uh, on two occasions. One was when um, uh, there's um, an LC that we went into that um, a mission was changed uh, that caused me to come in uh, with uh, another ship that um, we were reinforcing, bringing troops in to reinforce. And we were the lead ships, and uh, I was the second ship in. And uh, as I approached the landing zone, I could see the tracers again, you know, on both sides, just crisscrossing. It was a one-ship landing zone. I, we were approaching it on a steep approach because the 100-foot trees, and it was in a ravine. And so there's only one place a, a ship could land, so... When I broke over the trees, I saw that the ship ahead of me had just climbed out of the trees on the opposite side of that LZ. And so uh, I cleared the trees. And when I cleared the trees, I got hit with a machine gun from the left-hand side. And um, I just heard my engine blow up. And, and of course, immediately the, the um, engine out sign uh, signal came on. And so I took the controls from the co-pilot and... and um, I told him I'd put it down. He was a new, brand new guy. So <laughs> I, I took the controls and I set it down. And I was very fortunate. I mean, it, not a scratch on the ship other than where the bullets hit it, you know. And so while I was uh, there that night, um, Freeman, who I had flown with uh, the first seven or eight months in there uh, the whole time, 
uh, had been called back to, his orders had uh, been changed and they were sending him back to the States. And of course, Freeman was a really a lot older guy at that time. I mean, he was in his He 60s, was a senior I'm very pilot. Senior, I'm very. And he had come out of Korea, but he was ready to come back to the States. And he, you know, he turned in his gear and everything else. He, he had his khakis ready to get on board the Big Bird in Pleiku, which is about 30 miles away from our base camp. Well, he decided that, or he found out that I had been shot down that night. And so um, he went to the command and he said, I want to go back to my base camp. Uh, my, one of my guys has been shot down. So they, they said, well, you know, you're forfeiting your ticket back to the States. He said, that's okay. I want to go back. So they took him back. And when he got back, he went to Crandall. Crandall was the other guy that won the Medal of Honor at the Iodrang. And he was my commander. And he told Crandall, he says, um, I, want, uh, I want to go a bird to go get Frank. And um, Crandall says, uh, you can't do that. You, you don't belong to the unit anymore. You're supposed to be going back to the States. He said, you give me a bird or I'll take one. <laughs> and so he said, well, if that's the way it's going to be, he says, wait, we'll go tomorrow morning. I'll go with you. And so that's, um, that's what happened. They both came in and got me the next morning. And, uh, of course, everything was quiet the next morning. Uh, we we were under fire the whole night. They were probing. We had uh, uh, artillery fire all around, and that's uh, pretty well memorialized in in a book uh, by uh, S.L.A. Marshall. That uh, pretty well tells the story of what happened there. Yeah, I hadn't read the book, but I, I saw the film, and I know it's loosely based on Iodrang, the that battle uh, that Mel Gibson was mm -hmm. in. Uh, you talked a little bit before the show started uh, about your your absolute love for Gold Star families. Can you talk a little bit about that, your, your brothers that yes, weren't able I, to return? I think it would be most appropriate for the, um, considering it's Veterans Day, that... Um, we pay homage to the Gold Star families because if anybody made a sacrifice, uh, and they are always in the background. They're you know they're not upfront on everything, and uh, I think we tend to forget them and we um, set them aside unless the holiday's coming up. And um, but they're there. They suffered uh, the the anguish and the loss uh, of someone that made the ultimate sacrifice, and I think we owe them. Uh, a, Thanks for their um, sacrifice and their pain. I, I so agree with that. I mean, these young men, you know, pay the ultimate sacrifice, but their families continue to pay for that the rest of their lives. Yes. Yeah, no, absolutely well said, sir. Um, in closing, can you talk a little bit about your, have you ever gone back? Number one, have you ever gone back? Have you ever physically gone back to that area i know there there were some trips and so forth that weren't sanctioned some were sanctioned and so forth uh was that ever part of your mindset and in reflecting back in terms of we always talk about the greatest generation of um the heroes that looked at the nazi threat um what do you what do you say to those because i know there was some there was some ugliness after vietnam when the when our heroes came home and I think that's gone now. I think there's been a paradigm shift and people truly, and everyone embraces our, our heroes that, that you know, sacrifice themselves or were willing to sacrifice. Um, but, two, so two questions. One is, have you ever gone back? Have you thought about that? And then the second is, do you think we're in a better time today than we were following Vietnam? 
To answer your first question, I have never been back. I had no desire to go back. I uh, What I did is I, I spent that first year. Um, it was very traumatic, um, and, but I enjoyed it. Thoroughly. The flying part I enjoyed thoroughly. Sure. But I came back and joined um, a cavalry unit that was just being formed up, uh, the uh, 3rd of the 17th Cavalry. And uh, it was a separate squadron, um, air cavalry. And so I joined on as a gunship pilot, and uh, I trained for another year before I went over there. So I had my fill at that point in time. So really, I just went back to fulfill my career from there on. And my assignments took me into ground units, uh, ground cavalry and tank units. And so... Uh, I was having my fun in that area. And it keep, kept me occupied. I really had no desire to go back uh, in, into Vietnam at all. As a, I hate to use the word tourist, but as like returning today sort of thing, just to see it, you have no interest in seeing that no, piece of land. No, I, I do not. That I, makes we, sense to me. We have as many over here as they have over there, so, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and, and how about, how, what was it like following the war? Uh, coming home, you know, did you get, did your brothers and get those who paid that ultimate sacrifice, um, were they honored appropriately? And you made reference to the Afghanistan, which was a debacle. Um, how was your feelings coming out of the war? Well, let me let me relate a story to Please. you here. Um, a couple of things that happened. One of them was with, with my gunner, was Kumba. He's a Puerto Rican kid at the time and he came from an infantry unit and the night we, we were in, in the landing zone in uh, LC Monkey where we were shot down and spent the night at Mukumba about uh, we were getting like I said we got received two or three probes through the night and we thought we were going to be overrun and so the chatter was going back and forth and we were talking about about 20 Americans for the max that were in there you know we didn't know what force was out there but um, they kept probing and uh, Kumba crawled up to me, next to me, uh, and he said, Mr. Marino, he says, you know, we could get overrun. And I said, uh, I've heard chatter like that. He says, but I said, but, you know, we're, we're going to hold tough. And he said, well, I'll tell you what. He says, um, the way they briefed, he says, if, and, and the sergeant said we could get overrun. He says, if they do overrun us, he says, we can go out this way. And he showed uh, sheer um side of the hill with shale you know which it would be so almost impossible to climb yeah but it was treed so it's possible someone could make it up that way but he says we can go out that way if we have to and i said we've got kumba we got wounded here we can't go i says the lieutenant's wounded i says and we got several dead and there are other americans we got to think about that I, and i says i i'm staying i, I can't do it. he said well if I have to, I'll go, he says, but I'll shoot you before I go. And so that stopped me, you know. Wow. And I said, oh, well, what am I going to do? You know, it's okay. Um, and you, years later, uh, I confronted him with that. We became very, we were very good friends. Sure. I saw him at several reunions, and I said, do you remember saying that? He couldn't, I never said anything like that. So wow. that was... Um, I think that's what happens to people, you know. Uh, they're thinking out for your welfare and that sort of thing. I don't fault him for any, he Had he done it, I wouldn't be able to fault him. I, anyways, I'd be gone. Yeah. But wow. you, you mentioned the aftermath. Yeah. You know, we had, um, after, right after we got uh, out of the Iodrang, we lost the ship. 
uh, one of my classmates got lost in Vietnam, and um, we had no idea what had happened to him. We searched for him uh, for the next 90 days, a very intense search, and we committed ships, uh, aside from a mission, to conduct the, uh, continue the search and never found anything on him. Mm. And that was in 1965. And um, so I left the country and came back and still hadn't heard from him. His wife is, uh, they were from Idaho, Boise, Idaho. And uh, the, crew, the, gun, the crew chief uh, is from, was from Nebraska. And so the crew chief's uh, a sister called me in 2006 and, and said, I understand you were in this unit. Uh, would you be able to contribute anything on that at all? And that was the first time I'd been hurt. I'd heard about it, and so I, I talked to them. I said I'd meet with them. She said uh, that JPAC uh, team that was uh, had negotiated with the uh, Vietnamese of the government in Saigon, and they allowed our teams to go in there and search. And they uh, called me and asked me, and they gave me probable sites of where they were looking at, and asked me what I thought, which one I thought, and. I picked one, and by golly, that was the one that ultimately turned out to be that was, that's where they were. It was just a guess because it was close to our base camp and where the probable fl uh, flight of the aircraft was. What they did is they got lost in, in uh, weather. As soon as they climbed out in uh, the morning, they did. And uh, as it turned out, they... Uh, the JPEG team uh, pulled out uh, enough of the remains. They found dog tag. They found uh, bits of boot. Um, identification uh, off the aircraft, marks off the aircraft, pieces. It had been totally scavenged. Everything was gone. But uh, it had, they had been carrying uh, arms aboard. They had machine guns and whatnot. But um, they definitely identified them. And they ultimately, in 2010, they had a ceremony to bury Wow. Uh, the whole, they identify each one of the crew members gotcha. by DNA and whatnot, wow. bone uh, fragments and whatnot. But the story wasn't over because they said, well, how is it that they were able to know what brought it down? What happened to the aircraft? Did they crash because of weather? Did they do what? As it turned out, the team talked to villagers around there, and someone produced a certificate that was given to a villager for bringing down the helicopter. Oh. And, and when they asked him, he's the one that took him to the site. He says, yeah, I shot down a helicopter and it's over here. You know, he took him to the, the so the irony of the whole thing is that the whole circle yeah. was closed there because they found out uh, what had happened to the helicopter. And what they were doing, we speculate, is that um, they got, and the weather so bad, it was so thick, that they descended down to treetop level and were probably flying very slow over the, and they came over this open tree and here's this guy with his AK and he just yeah, the enemy. Yeah. And so. he gets a certificate. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, he had a certificate for it. Yeah. Wow. So. Wow. I cannot thank you enough for being on our show. And do you have any kind of parting words um, in regards to um, today's um, young men and women that uh, sign on that dotted line and raise your hand and, and uh, put themselves out there. I'll give you a very broad concern that I have. I would ask right now, based on the state of our, our society, on the state of our military, on the state of everything, I, and I would ask the people of our country, who is going to fight your next war? Number one. 
And the second question I would ask is, um, I have very strong feelings about what happened in Afghanistan, yeah. and I'm wondering, will there ever be a time when our troops will be abandoned? And that's my concern. We need leadership that will never let that happen. A true commander-in-chief. No, I'm with you, sir. I'm absolutely with Indeed. you. Uh, again, I cannot thank you enough, not just for being here in, my, in our presence. You truly honored us being here, but for everything you've done, um, go Army. Thank you, sir. You're very kind. Thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, we'll be right back. More stories, inside guests, and true blue humor coming up on Batch Boys. We'll be back right after this. I'm Pete James, a retired law enforcement officer who has a passion for the safety and security of those in the profession. OfficerPrivacy.com offers a full range of privacy services that removes your personal information from the internet so you and your family can feel safe and secure in your home. OfficerPrivacy.com will keep you safe. You're listening to Batch Boys with retired police sergeant Darren Birch and retired police officer Jason Schechterly. Now, back to the Batch Boys. Welcome back, everybody. What a wonderful Veterans Day special, having retired Major Frank Moreno talk about the Battle of Aya Drang and how the bravery of so many saved even more when they were outnumbered 7,000 to 400. Uh, what a, a stirring, stirring account, and uh, what a great guy. And watching him and his wife. Um, oh, they're so cute. They were. They yeah, were so shout absolutely. Out, shout out to his beautiful wife, Margie. Absolutely, Margie. Yeah. yeah. Uh, we have a wonderful Cop Talk segment. We're going to continue the stellar lineup with uh, Jim Callums. He was on our show, uh, episode number 93, talking about the very first report ever on a Michael Jackson sex crimes victim that sexual predator who used his celebrity status to shield himself from responsibility for those crimes so many crimes um i'm not a, a fan as you can tell having been a sex crimes detective for the bulk of my career uh at, you know working burglary and homicide and so forth but really when i think about it on my tombstone would be sex crimes so i hate michael jackson i hate what he's done i hate all the families that what he has done to all those families, I hate it. Uh, so I'm so honored that uh, Jim Kelms came on Badge Boys to tell us about that story of that first victim. And if Jim, if you could just talk a little bit about who that victim was, just kind of refresh our memories, and then tell us about this book that you wrote. Yeah, the uh, initially back in '93, uh, uh, 1993, uh, you know, my uh, sergeant, my watchman at the time, Bill Delatore, you know, asked me to. Uh, come to the station. There was nobody else clear to handle a, a serious uh, call that somebody needed to uh, address. So he, I went to the station and met him there, and uh, there was a CPS worker there. Uh, long story short, they told me that uh, the allegations were uh, against Michael Jackson, and the victim was a 13-year-old boy, and they needed me to go out there ASAP to interview him and get the initial uh, DR departmental report going in the system. So that's how that first played out. And when we talked about it, 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 this was the first time. I mean, this was like, after this, when all the other victims started coming forward, all saying we, i.e. the law enforcement community, knew where there's smoke there's fire there's too many allegations there's too many similarities there's too there's an 
aha moment there where this isn't just you know a um, an angry fan or a uh, upset ex-employee or something like that there's some there's there's a there there having said that when you write this book there hasn't been a lot of books on this um what was that like you know bridging this gap and talking about your experience with this victim uh, and i know the book is much more than just about you know the, um, michael jackson's uh investigation it's also right. about your life and and your career and 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 so forth uh, and by the way it's a wonderful wonderful book so tell us about what that was like writing that particular story in terms of michael jackson and then the overall arc of the book sure uh you're correct uh first of all uh you know, interviewed him and the father uh, that night. Uh, it took a it took a lot to swallow. I mean, uh, you have a thirteen year old boy in front of you telling things that you normally would hear from a, an adult. You know, yeah. And uh, having to go dig deep to see if this person is lying to me, going back and forth, and everything that he did, he was credible with me, and um, taking with him and and other things that came up of other people that were involved in this. Uh, this was, you know, I always tell people I was the first one to take the initial report. I was the one that started it all. Not that I'm bragging about it, but that's what got all that hit the news. Then all these other victims start coming forward. Yeah, it gave them domino effect started. Yeah, it's almost like the hashtag me too kind of thing. You by your report, by you putting out, and of course we talked about this in the last episode of number uh, you know ninety three where we talked about the fact that um, media jumped all over this, so it got out there, and then others felt kind of safe and were able to report. Is is that kind of like your assessment as well? Yeah, pretty much. I remember I talked. I remember talking to one of the lead detectives uh, out of uh, Parker Parker Station, uh, where all of them were housed at, and he had got with me and asked me what my feelings were. And I said, "Well, I I don't have a lot of the experience that you have." I said, "But uh, from all indications, I believe this kid's telling the truth." And uh, he says, "I think you're right." And he goes, "I'm going to be digging a lot deeper." So. And like you said, it slid into a firestorm. Yeah, it did. I mean, uh, I remember coming back to the station the next day, and there was like over 50 pink slips of calling all these news media places <laughs> back, you know. And, and uh, I always laugh, you know, one of the old guys working the front desk, you know, uh, P2 or P3, uh, uh, he was permanent desk duty. He's like, I'm hanging up on half these people. They're starting to you know, tick me off. <laughs> so, <laughs> He was getting inundated by all these phone calls and having the media, messages. So. The media can do that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So anyways, of course, I never called any of them back. I mean, well, nothing to do with it. But uh, uh, that's, then, that's how it all played out. And you know, then so it, many it, years it later, so many years later, you decide, you know, retired. I can write this story and you write this book. Tell us about the book, where we can get it. Tell us about it. Yeah, I mean, first of all, i got to give some accolades out there. First to you, Darren, and Tim Moore, and uh, Richard Whitaker, my LAPD street fighter out there. Uh, uh, You took a lot of my phone calls. Uh, It's a lot of work. I always laugh when people say, I'm going to go write a book. Oh, yeah, (laughs) tell me me about that when you get done with that. I mean, it took me over a year just to get all all of it together and another four to five months just to get it all edited and everything else. So with you guiding me the way with Tim and Richard, it made life a lot easier. And uh, one thing that all three has told me 
you know, I'll tell anybody else that wants to go write a book is uh, uh, there's a lot of people that say they're going to write one, but very few actually go out and do it. So um, it, it's it's a real accolade to have that done and get it under your belt. It's it's not easy. And you've written a wonderful book. Having read it, it's a wonderful, wonderful book. Uh, please, I'm glad you liked it. Oh, it was really well done. Really well done. Tell us about um, where we can get this book. The title. Give us the particulars. The cost. Sure. It's uh, it's called Unwavering Honor. It's uh, available on Amazon, either in a Kindle form or paperback. It's nine ninety five for the paperback, and I think it's four ninety nine for the Kindle. And uh, it's usually next day service. If you order it today, you'll have it tomorrow. So uh, Amazon's really good about uh, getting the product out immediately. And I think to date right now, we've sold over 120 copies. That's amazing. Amazing. And, um, uh, everybody emails me, even people I don't even know who they are. They say, you know, are you going to write another book? Oh, actually, I've, I've got the chapters lined out, but I haven't started writing anything yet. I'll probably start doing that at the end of the year. But uh, um as you and I talked, Darren, you know, writing this last one, more and more ideas came up that sparked a lot of memories. So I was writing notes on the side on a steno pad while I was writing this book because I knew I'd want to do a second book. So uh, I've got about 10 or 12 chapters outlined that I can really write some good stuff about next time around. Good for you. Good for you. Tell me, was it cathartic? Did it help in terms of dealing with some stress? I noticed when, when I wrote my book, and it was funny. You know, the bulk of my book is funny, and it still caused me some pain reflecting upon different things and so forth. Uh, I can't help but think um, that time in your life and then other things you wrote about, quite frankly, and I don't want to give anything away. I don't want to say too much because I want the readers to really right. f- enjoy that journey, and I use enjoy in, in – in, um, you know, finger quotes in, in the sense that it's riveting, it's compelling, it's tragic, it's sad. There's It goes all over the spectrum. Was it cathartic, ultimately? Yes. I mean, if you read the first chapter, you know, it talks about who I am and, and the direction I'm trying to go into. And back in the uh, late 70s, early 80s, trying to get into our line of work was extremely difficult. I mean, I was taking tests and uh, getting on lists dying on the list. And I remember telling myself, I just can't do this. I mean, you know, you, you pour your heart and soul on this, you know, you're talking, you know, a year at a time, you know, just to go through all the process, just to die on a list. And uh, I think times have changed now compared to what it was like when you and I tried getting on back oh, in the day. 100% correct. 100%. Um, I mean, I, the the guy, when I went to uh, my junior college, Jerry uh, Von Hellebrick, he told me, he says, you know, this job, there's only a handful of jobs, and it's really extremely hard to get into this line of work. And he wasn't lying; it was pretty hard. And uh, you know, but I think to go forward to people, they really want to do a job. No matter, no matter what it is, it's going to be an electrician or an engineer, or whatever. If you don't give up and you continue to push forward, you'll ultimately reach your goal. And I think that's what I try to portray in the first chapter. That one was pretty hard to write because there was a lot, of, a lot of sadness in there with my parents, you know, really pr- promoting me, keeping me up, keeping my spirits up. And then, of course, my last chapter in there called Reflections, where I talk about uh, death notifications and, of course, my daughter. So that one yeah. was really hard to write. 
And it was it was hard to read. I, I won't lie in the sense that it, it's tragic, it's compelling, it's sad, but ultimately uplifting. And again, you have to read this book to understand what I mean by that. It's just truly a wonderful book. I cannot... Um, I can't dote on you enough for, for writing. And like you said, you're 100% right. And those who, you know, counseled you on the writing, uh, many people, every every cop has a book in them. Every cop has a book in them. Um, right. Some of us have more stories to share. Some, you know, like yours and dealing with, um, you know, the Michael Jackson first victim is uh, truly something that only you can talk about. So it, it it's, a, it's a credit to you that you wrote this book, um, but it's also a credit to you for, going through your career and the adversity, uh, personal tragedies that you've encountered and continue to think upbeat and helping the community that the way you do. If you could, could you talk about that nonprofit as we close? Yeah, I'd be happy to. I, you know, I was going to bring that up too. Uh, I've had a lot of people, you know, joking around with me, you know, I guess you make it the big bucks now. You're the next Joseph Wamba and all this stuff. And I'm like, oh, thanks very much. But I don't think so. <laughs> Writers don't I, make I money. Them, I go, look, I'm not making any money on this. All this money that's generated through this uh, book sales, either the Kindle or the paperbacks, could go directly to the Stephanie Lee Calvin's Memorial Scholarship Foundation. And uh, I didn't write this book for monetary gain for myself. I wrote it to help society to, to further our, our society to be better people out there. We target kids that maybe are, you know, uh, single family mom or grandma raising them that have the smarts but just don't have the funding to get to the next level. And those are the kind of uh, students that we target to kind of bring them up to level against everybody else that doesn't have those opportunities. And my daughter Stephanie, when she taught, and she was an EL, English, English arts teacher, she tutored kids before school and after school, bought them clothes, bought them food, you know, because she knew if she didn't do that, society as a whole is going to forget about these kids. Yeah, one thing I want to bring up uh, before we close is uh, probably about four or five years ago, we gave away a, a pretty good scholarship to a young man here in uh, Richardson, Texas, and um he had come up to my wife and I says, well, can I speak to you privately? And I said, sure. Is there something wrong? And he goes, no, I just would like to talk to you away from this crowd. And I said, okay. So we go outside the corridor and he said, I just want to let you know if it wasn't for your daughter, I wouldn't be standing here right now. And I said, oh. well, what does it mean? He goes, well, he goes, at best, he goes, I was a D student. He goes, my mom was raising me and my brothers. We didn't care about school and your daughter tutored me before school, after school, told me how smart I could be. And she bought me food when I didn't have any money to buy any food. And uh, she go, he goes, if it wasn't for her, I wouldn't be standing here right now. This is a kid that was failing elementary school, got his life together, went to high school, was a 4-0 student all the way through high school, and now he's going to medical school. Wow. I mean, uh, Tell me what a successful story that is. Yeah, and, and, and see, those are the kind of those are the kind of kids we go after because they got the smarts; they just need the leg up. Yeah, and talking about paying forward, this is a medical student who's going to help people as a uh, in the yeah, medical absolutely. profession. So, yeah, no, you're spot on. Again, congratulations, and one last time, how we can get that book, uh, the name, um, and the um, I know it's Amazon, but please. Yeah, you could go to Amazon, just type in the search bar, Unwavering Honor, and uh, click search, and it'll bring it right up. We've got over 20 uh, five-star reviews right now, 
And like I said, as of the yesterday, I checked, we had over 20, 120 books sold. It may be about 20 Kindles. So uh, we're, we're doing real well. And then one last time, the, uh, uh, the website for the, uh, the nonprofit. The website's going to be www.stephanies, S-T-E-P-H-A-N-I-E-S-C-H-O-L-A-R-S-H-I-P.org. Fantastic. I cannot thank you enough, my friend, and come back to uh, Badge Boys again to talk about uh, your uh, your second book. <laughs> yeah, I'm looking forward to it. It's going to be some good stuff. I mean, a uh, few things I'll go ahead and tell you now. I'm going to talk about PTSD. I think it's real important because uh, there's some people out there that I've dealt with, and I'm, I'm pretty sure you and I and a lot of other people have dealt with it in yeah. one way or another. Absolutely. But uh, there's, there's some tragic stories out there that I was involved with, and there's some survivor stories I'm going to talk about. So uh, that's yeah. going to be one of my chapters. Yeah, we need to uh, get the word out to save uh, future lives Definitely. because with the summer of hell that we went through, and uh, we're going to, sadly, we've seen an uptick in suicides with law enforcement. And, uh, yeah, no, good for you. I and look and I, I hope book. going forward, I hope going forward, police management recognizes it even more so now yeah. because you know how it was years ago. Uh, you're a tough guy. You shouldn't be saying that kind of stuff. You know, those days are over with. Exactly right. So we need to start addressing the problem. Yeah. We, we do more maintenance on our cars than we did our officers. So, no, absolutely right, my exactly. friend. Exactly. I totally agree with you, Darren. Well, we will be right back uh, for our last segment, uh, Looney Laws and Inspirational Clothes. We'll be right back. More stories, inside guests, and true blue humor coming up on Batch Boys. We'll be back right after this. We both signed up for the service and are so happy with it. OfficerPrivacy.com is offering a very special deal for listeners of the Badge Boys. This is a great deal. Go to OfficerPrivacy.com forward slash BB. Their team of current and retired law enforcement officers will remove your information from the top 30 sites that are showing your home address, your phone number, and so much more. When you sign up now with our link, you'll get a free bonus mailed to you, plus your first month of monitoring for free. You don't have to be an officer to sign up. If you are a family member or just don't want your personal information out there on the internet, you can join OfficerPrivacy.com. We've met the owner, had him on our show, great guy, and he will take care of you, I promise. If you care about your online privacy, and I highly recommend the service he provides, sign up at OfficerPrivacy.com forward slash BB. You're listening to Badge Boys with retired police sergeant Darren Birch and retired police officer Jason Schechterly. Now, back to the Badge Boys. You know, we've had a lot of guests that have written books, uh, including <laughs> ourselves right here sitting in this room, uh, Rob well, and you're I. The one, you're the one that tells everybody, look, there's a book in you, you got to write a book. And, and I'm so happy when they do it, and that's what Jim did when it was when this segment was, and again, it was episode 93, Jim Callums talks about taking report on a, a young child who was victimized by Michael Jackson before any news of that had ever broke before. He was the first victim. I told Jim, got to write a book, buddy. We need more officers like you because he's a good officer, career officer, uh, stellar career, and I'm just so glad he did it because it is a long journey. It, the, the most difficult part is really taking, um, turning the Crayola marks into print. That's the hardest part, guys. Come well, on. Well, no, the hardest part is reliving it is. the traumatic no, in experiences. And, you know, yeah. your, your books do the same thing. Even yeah. though there's a lot of laughs in there, 
there's places where you want to cry. There's places that you want to get up and throat punch somebody because you can't believe the craziness that's out there. So yeah. your, your books are kind of like that, too. And, and, and you're right. Jim Callum's book, uh, uh, Unwavering Honor, was so good. But it was also it's, it's it's as good as it is tragic. It's as good as it is compelling. It's as good as it is riveting. Uh, it's, it's history. You know, the, the segment about Michael Jackson is only one segment of the book. It's a lot of stuff, and uh, it's really a wonderful book, and I highly recommend it. I mean that. Um, this is the segue to our Looney Laws. Um, yeah, yeah. They, uh, you know, they may have made sense when they were written, but today they're just so questionable. We're just plain Looney. They're in every state, and here's the next set of Looney Laws. Yeah, the first law comes in from Tennessee. A person can legally panhandle by paying for a permit. That's right. Panhandlers in Memphis, Tennessee, must apply for a permit to panhandle. Now, as I'm looking at my beautiful uh, uh, producer, Robin, she's shaking her head and making that face like, what? Yeah. Panhandlers are literally begging for money. And some politician made a law thinking he could get panhandlers who are begging for money to pay for a permit. Is that the stupidest thing you ever heard? All I can say is that politician is an asshat, first of all. (laughs) And second of all, seriously, you got to buy a permit to go beg for money. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's like an oxymoron. It's complete. Yeah, ah, enough said. Uh, In (laughs) Texas, um, you can't litter from an aircraft. That's right. And it is illegal in Galveston, Texas to throw litter out of an aircraft. Now, my reason I think this is loony is like, why would that not be illegal anywhere? Uh, windows don't open up in an aircraft, uh, and number I'm, I'm one. I'm assuming like, you know, when you do the little, um, you know, Cessnas or something, oh, you know, that's that the only kind. thing I can think. Yeah, that's yeah. the only thing I can think of. Because um, you don't open a window in an aircraft when you're like 30,000 feet up, you get sucked out of the no, window. No, you'd be throwing a body out. <laughs> okay, well, now if it's my ex-husband, that's considered trash. I'm yeah, sorry. That be, that, so just don't do it in Galveston, okay? <laughs> okay. okay. <laughs> in Utah, it's illegal to, oh gosh, in Utah, I'm going to try to say this with a straight face. It is legal to fire a missile at a bus terminal. That's right. <laughs> Hurling a missile into a bus terminal is a felony in Utah, unless you are an appointed officer of the peace or a commercial security cop, like, you know, a mall cop. So, yeah. Um, a missile? Yeah, yeah. So those of you that are thinking about playing with your missiles, uh, no pun intended. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, um, there's no <laughs> hurling your missile into a bus terminal, at least in Utah. And then our last loony law is from Vermont. In Vermont, clotheslines are forever. Yeah, they pass a law to uh, say just that, that there could never be a law prohibiting the use of clothesline. That's right. They have a law to prohibit other laws that would prohibit clotheslines. It's the dumbest thing I ever heard, having a law prohibit a law, because you can't really do that. And the second, it's about clotheslines? Really? Well, it's good to know that white trash is alive and well and forever in Vermont. And that is our loony laws. (laughs) 
You know, if I could only travel back in time and be the fly on the wall in some of these meetings when they come up with these laws, right, just out of curiosity. Right. I mean, what y'all smoking and drinking back then? Oh God, every state has them. Uh, the we're going to forego the heroic headline until next week. Uh, we're running out of time, but I want to give that time to uh, May. To both our guests, but man, I, I needed to hear the story of um, you know Aya um, Drang and the battle from this war hero that was sitting next to us. And you know, wonderful. he's so humble. He was he just was. sitting here, kicking back, relaxing, and I'm just like, really, this guy did some serious stuff during wartime. Yeah. It was really cool. Yeah, yeah, he was nominated for the uh, Medal of Honor, and uh, you know, one be correct me, like, no, 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 it didn't go through yet. <laughs> it's like, wow. Um, yes, and he is an inspiration in an of itself but i do have an, a little bit of an inspiration and it talked a lot about what jim calm said about wanting to be a police officer and, and working so hard towards that it wasn't just a wish uh, you all know the poem when you wish upon a star uh, so i'll say a little bit of it when you wish upon a star it makes no difference who you are anything your heart desires will come to you if your heart is in your dreams no request is too extreme when you wish upon a star as dreamers do and then it ends with when you wish upon a star your dreams come true well according to astronomy when you wish upon a star you're actually a few million years too late that star is long gone it's dead just like your dreams so my inspiration is so don't just make wishes hoping they'll come true it's hard work it's commitment it's practice it's dedication that's what makes dreams come true, not wishes. And that is my inspirational close. You almost made me cry, Darren. Aww. That was we, so sweet. We, we have, what a great Veterans Day show. I, and I love spending this day with you, Robin. I cannot thank you enough for almost three years, uh, you know, crazy? making Jason and I sound, you know, almost, almost uh, recognizable. Oh, stop it. You guys, you guys are so good at this. Uh, you better no. never leave me. <laughs> never. I also want to thank Dave Pratt uh, for allowing us to do this here at Star Worldwide Networks. Uh, Dave, again, www.starworldwidenetworks.com. Uh, he is amazing what he does for our community uh, and these shows. is a gift from Dave and I thank you for that and most of all I want to thank you for listening on us because without you there is no Badge Boy so until next week stay safe Badge Boys thanks for listening to Badge Boys <laughs> stories insights guests and true blue humor with retired police sergeant Darren Birch and retired police officer Jason Schechterly Badge Boys heard weekly and worldwide on Star Worldwide Networks and all mobile devices Badge Boys